The greatest predictor of success for a child is dad. And 25% of kids in America do not have a dad in the home. It means you go to Discovery Club or something like that, one, two, three, no dad in that home. One, two, three, no dad in that house. One, two, three, no dad in that house. That is 20% for white families, so one out of every five, because a lot of times we try to make this like a, like a culture thing. It's really not. It's across the board. One out of four Hispanic families and one out of every two black families do not have a dad living in the home. So when we look at the society around us and we say, how are we going to fix all this? Good place to start is to get dads back where they belong, which is what we're going to talk about today, which makes this sermon rather important, I would think, don't you think? We take these days, Mother's Day, Father's Day, to speak to gender, sexuality, and marriage from a biblical perspective. Now, knowing all of that information about fathers and the stats and all that, you would think that there would be a great societal push to elevate dad, to cultivate masculine leadership and and responsibility among young men, and to, to teach women what kind of men they should be looking for. Is that what we see? The exact opposite of that. And now there will be some time today where we talk about those that are kind of have that activist mindset that just really don't seem to like men. But we also, gentlemen, need to take responsibility for ourselves that we, in many ways, large measure, have slid into that role that requires less of us all too willingly. I'm going to say we. I know that there are great men and great dads and great husbands in here, but we need to use we language when we're talking about repentance and getting it right. We have a shortage of real men in the United States of America. And I don't balk from using the term real men, by the way. It's been so attacked and so criticized largely by feminists for saying that that's a way to oppress women is by saying that a real man does this. It's also been attacked by the gay community that, oh, so you're saying a real man has to do something? Look, the Lord has told us, the Lord has shown us what a real man is. And here's the thing. We have been so afraid as men to grow up in previous generations that the current and rising generations don't know how to grow up. Been so afraid to go from boy to man. And I don't know if that was the note, trust anybody over 30 generation or what it is. But because we we were so afraid to take that step and stop being a young man and just be a man, scared to death of words like old, scared to death of all that kind of stuff, that now the young younger folks coming up, they don't know what to do. They've never seen it done. So we gotta dig some of this out and hold it up. So today is a, is a day to say yes to dad to say yes to fathers and husbands and sons, but also for us to be encouraged. Men, we do not need to wait for permission to be who God has made us to be. And if you need it, this is going to be it. But we don't wait for that. We don't wait until culture tells us it's okay. Now you can start doing what God has made you to be. Now you can start acting masculine and you can be tough again. And you can, especially, we do not wait, gentlemen, for permission from women in order to be men. We are to lead. We're to step up. It's time for us today to look at the way the Bible holds up how men and especially dads ought to be. Contrast that with what the world is either pushing or allowing. Some of these things have been like, you know, forced on us. Some of them we've just kind of, like I said, slid into and we've got to stop it. You can't just fix one piece of this. And this is where those of another political persuasion get it wrong. They think we can get rid of all the strange, aberrant stuff and go right back to the broken way we were doing it before. No, it's all got to be ripped up. 
and repaired from the bottom up in God's model. We're going to move out of being having an adolescent model of masculinity and replacing it with a grown-up one and a biblical one. We know how to be boys, and that's time for us to step up and be men. All right? So let's get into this. We have eight things we're going to go through, and we're going to go pretty quick through them. But we're going to look at what the Bible holds up and contrast that with what the world holds up instead. First thing we're going to look at is that as Christian men, we hold up masculinity as a virtue. That might sound very general, but it's important to say this. We see masculinity, which is being a man and being manly, as a good thing. As I said before, the church ought to have the manliest men and the most feminine women anywhere. Masculinity is not just something that happens. It's not something that is neutral. It is something that is positive in Scripture. I I draw to your attention the fact that God is exclusively referred to as masculine. And there are a lot of people that want to push these things. But we all know that God is neither male nor female. Okay, we don't all know that because the Bible is presented in a gendered way in Scripture. And then we say, well, we know gender is tied to biology. Well, for you and I, it's tied to biology. The Lord is creating us in his image. The Trinity, in all of their threeness. The Father. I mean, right off the bat, right? God the Father, the first person of the Godhead. The second person of the Godhead is the Son. And when God became a man, he became a man. Jesus Christ, who actually does have biology related to his gender. And the Holy Spirit, now this is an interesting one, because the Holy Spirit, the word spirit in Greek is a neuter noun, meaning it does not have gender attached to it. So Spanish has, if it ends with an O, it's masculine. If it ends with an A, it's feminine, right? Greek is like that, but there's a third gender called neuter. So very often you use neuter verbs related to the spirit because of the grammar. So people will say that. See, there you go. God is is not gendered. And also, the Holy Spirit might even be feminine. This is a new thing you're hearing. That's the feminine side of God. Well, That that seems persuasive until you realize the only time that gendered pronouns are used to refer to the Holy Spirit, they are masculine. John 14, 26, Jesus said, I will send him to you. So masculinity is a good thing. 1 Kings 2, verse 2, David is dying and he says to his son Solomon, I am about to go to the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man. And isn't it interesting that phrases like that, be a man, are attacked now as toxic? We can have a little fun today, you guys. You don't have to be so serious all the time, all right? (laughs) He says, be strong and show yourself a man. The defining virtue of men in the Bible is strength. That's what masculinity is. It's strength and honor. It's courage. It's action. Strength of, of character and of mind, but also of the body, gentlemen. Because we have to be able to execute what God has called us to do, not just to have the right intentions. And this is universal across cultures. This is why it's, it's kind of hilarious to see how we're dismantling and deconstructing gender, and yet every other place in the whole world is looking at us like, what are y'all doing? You know, people that, you, you hear the things that even Islamic countries will say about America and gender and marriage, and it's hard to disagree with them. Because it's like, uh, yeah, that's not, that's not what normal people do to say nothing of scripture. I mean, today, the value is not masculinity. Femininity is valued in some respects, but really, it's androgyny. 
That's the virtue. It's kind of gender-bendy, somewhere in the middle, not really to the extreme, because masculinity, as I said again, is toxic. And that's just not a phrase that's thrown around online. There are college courses that teach this as required learning for children coming in. So we got to remember that. We send our kids off to school, and one of the first classes they're going to take is some woman standing up and telling them that your manhood is toxic. What it needs is a strong dose of femininity. The best men are most like women, we see that. Haven't you seen that to be true? What's a, what's a good man look like? Well, he's vulnerable, and he's soft, and he's sensitive, and he loves to talk about his feelings, and he's not aggressive or competitive. You're describing a woman. And then we can flip that around. What's a good woman like? Well, she's strong and tough, and, and we've got it totally backwards, don't we? Now, is there some overlap there? Of course, but I think you get what I'm saying here. The Bible insists that men be men. 1 Corinthians eleven fourteen, Paul tells the people in the church that it's a disgrace for men to have long hair. What's his point? His point is it's a disgrace for men to bend their gender to be like women. It's also the same thing for ladies. Although Paul's not making that point there. The point he's making is that for a, and, and, I, and I see us tittering in here, so I'm going to explain what I mean by this. All right, Paul's not making a universal statement about hairstyle. All right, in Paul's day, this is how it was done. I mean, you look at other cultures around the world, like the Polynesian cultures, the guys have hair down to their ankles, right? We read about Absalom in the Old Testament, who was the classic example of manhood, who had hair that hung down and was super heavy, had to cut it off every year. Paul's point is a man who presents himself as a woman is a disgrace. You tracking with me now? Which is something for us to hear because there's an awful lot of that going on. Where you say, don't just, you have to tell everybody how you want to be referred to. Men are to be men in, a, in conduct and attitude and their appearance, which means some basic stuff that we have to affirm in the church, right? Guys wear suits, not dresses. Right? That that's, seems kind of silly, but no, that's, that's right. That, you know, ladies don't wear suits and guys don't wear gowns. That seems so obvious, but that's true. Men tend to wear our hair shorter than women and in different styles. Gentlemen shake hands with each other. The etiquette, by the way, gentlemen, for shaking a hand with a woman is to wait for her to extend her hand first. Because it's not good for a man to show up and put her there, lady, you know? <laughs> Men work hard. We can have fun. It's okay to laugh, right? We enjoy sports. We enjoy, enjoy combat. That's what men do. They set us apart from women, and they're not to be mocked. They're to be cultivated, right? Why do you guys always want to watch action movies? Because they're guys, right? You know, then the ladies have plenty of backup when it's like, well, you, why do you want me to always want to watch the game with you? It's like, well, because this is what I like. And then we tell the guys, gentlemen, she's a lady. Let her be a lady. Well, ladies say the same thing to you. He's a man. Let him be a man. You want him to be a man, don't you? The answer is yes. Yes, you do. <laughs> what do I say from all this? Gentlemen, don't let anybody stick a finger in your face and say the way God made you is not right. The God, way that God made you is toxic. Absolutely not. Let's move on. Second thing, self-control. And I'm specifically here talking about sexual self-control. Bible tells us that men are not just to remain abstinent from sex before marriage, but from lust prior, during, and after. 
And we hear that and we go, oh, come on, that's not tough, that's not manly, that's not, okay. Did you know that ancient soldiers and ancient athletes, the Greeks in the Olympian games and things like that, they were to abstain from sex as well. Because they say you're not going to be able to focus, you're not going to be able to compete at the level that you're supposed to. They were willing to give those things up for a short time in order to do what needed to be done. So the idea of it being not manly is actually an, an example of overreaching, I think. It's adolescent manliness. They say, well, a real man is lustful. That's like a 13-year-old boy would say something like that. Job 31, verses 1 and 3, he said, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How could I gaze upon a virgin? Is it not calamity for the unrighteous and disaster for the workers of iniquity? Job goes, he's not even talking about fornication here. He's talking about lust. Because it ruins people's lives. Why do I want anything to do with that? And so I look, I, you, you think of these, these pagan cultures that were willing to abstain from this stuff for the sake of the Olympics, right? Or for the sake of going to war. In fact, even in the Bible, it says that the men who went to battle for Israel were to withhold themselves from their wives until the battle was over. What do I, what's the point I'm trying to make there? Is that this does not define you as a man to be lustful. A grown man shouldn't let himself be mastered by his urges, Right? We're to be sober. We're to be in control. However, we've kind of given up teaching this to our sons. And the, the, the uh, common wisdom today is you can't teach boys to not to look, so just teach them to be careful. And that has led to the rampant epidemic of pornography throughout every level of society because we're defining ourselves by men as men, by our raging desires. That's how you know I'm still a man, is because I've still got this really high libido. What? The, the highest that, that your libido will ever be is when you're like 11, 12, 13. Is that when you're the most manly? No, that's when, that's, that's I'm not going to say anything else. That's, that's <laughs> not that. And see, that's kind of an overreaction, isn't it? So you see people pushing this kind of soft, feminized men, and these men over here say, well, we don't want to do that, so what's the opposite of that? Just raging sexual hormones. Well, that's, that's not God's way. Jesus told us that to lust is adultery, Matthew 5, 28, right? Regardless of the available temptation, by the way, well, I live in an age where it's impossible to avoid it. It's not impossible, because God wouldn't have told you to do something that wasn't impossible. Well, it's everywhere. It's on my phone. Okay, then break your phone. Get a flip phone. Well, that's ridiculous. Uh, well, okay. Jesus said, cut out your right eye if it causes you to sin. How about that? Wild fantasies are the province of boys, not men. We are not animals to run after our desires. That was Josh McDowell that first made that point. He's like, real men are just full of, full of lust and vigor. He says, no, that's what dogs are like. We don't define ourselves by those things because out of control lust and especially pornography, gentlemen, will shape your hunger. It'll shape the things that you lust for. It'll become out of control. So be a man and master them. Master your urges. And I've already spoken about this before, but I'll just remind it. Ladies, you need to do your part to help the men in your life by the things you post online, by the conversations you have, by the things that you introduce into your home. It might not be a big deal to you, ladies. It might be a big deal to him. Help him, because it is tough. Number three, let's talk about marriage. Okay, so we're being masculine in general. We're abstaining from lust, but all right, what am I going to do with all these drives that God has given to me? Well, marriage. Men are to reserve sex for marriage. 
Because it is good within its boundaries, but disastrous otherwise. The better something is, the worse it is when it goes bad. Right? Just look at Satan. The glorious cherub, the one that was enthroned in, in Eden, and then he becomes Satan. The devil, the father of lies. The better something is, the worse it is when it goes bad. So sex is reserved for marriage where it can be fully engaged. In fact, you know that marriage is God's solution to young men who are lustful? Doesn't sound very romantic, but look what it says. 1 Corinthians 7 verse 9, he says, It is better to marry than to burn with passion. He says, I know not everybody's going to get married, but if you can't control yourself, get married. And I, I know, we've, I'm not calling anybody out, without anybody specifically, but parents will say to their, their kids that want to get married, well, they're so young, and the only reason they want to get married is because they want to have sex. Okay. <laughs> That's biblical. That's kind of God's reason for that, is to push them into that relationship and to help them grow up a little faster. That's not a good reason to get married. It's a biblical reason to get married. They had arranged marriages back there in any way. How do you know if it's the right person? The Bible is not so much worried about finding the right person as much as being the right person once you are married. Marriage forces men to grow up quickly. If young men knew that there was no place that they could exercise their sexual drive until they were married, then you, I think you would see some young men getting married and preparing themselves for that stage a little faster, wouldn't you say? Proverbs chapter 5, verses 18 through 20, celebrates this. He says, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Well, how about that? Be intoxicated with the love of your wife. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? Solomon is like, get married and go crazy. Love her with everything you've got. Let her body even delight you at all times. Be love drunk is a term that we use sometimes. But with your wife, says, why would you reserve this part of you for somebody that's not your wife? Husbands and wives, according to 1 Corinthians 7, 4, by the way, do not have rights to each other's bodies in the sexual relationship. You're not allowed to say no to each other, except for a time, Paul says, for fasting. Because nobody else deserves you, gentlemen. What you have is too special to be wasted on a bunch of different people that you're never going to see again. But today, we view marriage as marriage is something for established professionals. When you've got your life worked out, and everything is good, and you're making that six figures, and you've got the house, then maybe it's time to start looking for somebody to marry. And it's hardly necessary anymore because we now permit and encourage fornication and cohabitation. Why are people not getting married? Why would they? They can have sex without getting married. They can have all of, as we say, the fun without any of the work. You can't fix one of these things without fixing the other, do you see? And cohabitation, living together before you get married, is not a solution. The statistics for people who live together before they get married, you are almost certainly going to be divorced if that's the case. Now, that's not gospel. The Lord can repair and forgive anything. But that's just what the stats say. Or we're going to live together for a while, then we'll get married, and we'll be better off because we, we kind of tried it out for a while. That's not what it says when we studied it. 
Marriage, by the way, beyond that is a holy thing. Hebrews 13, 4 says, let the marriage bed remain holy and undefiled. Should not be violated because of a desire to stay young. How many guys like are in their 40s now and they're still trying to do the going bar hopping thing and finding a bunch of women to sleep with thing because I'm still a strong young buck and look at me. It's like, all right, but now what do you have to show for it? You've got nothing to show for it. Well, if I get married, then it's a, that's just what old people do. No, that's not true. It shouldn't be true anyway. We should build our lives together. We cannot, and this is, this, some of this is my opinion I'm about to say here. I've said it before. But we cannot keep insisting that our sons especially stay single all the way through their teens and 20s and, and then expect them to, to stay holy and to stay pure. God doesn't even have that expectation in Scripture. Those are the years when they ought to be building a home and raising their young families. How many people wait so long to get married and then it's difficult for them to build the life that they want because they simply don't have enough years left? I'm a big, strong proponent of getting married young and having children early. That's what I did, but that's not the only reason why. I don't believe it because I did it. I did it because I believe it. Because we're going to say, all right, you're going to go through the most tumultuous, hormonal, driven, almost difficult to control years without any outlet for it. But don't look at porn and don't sleep around because that wouldn't be right. We're we're ignoring what God has said. Well, he's not ready to get married. Marriage will make him ready. It'll grow him up. Gentlemen, didn't it grow you up? When you realize, all right, I'm the man of this house now. They're not just like, you know, saying something cute when your dad goes on vacation or something like that. No, really, it's me. I'm the guy. She's depending on me. This little person is looking at me. I better get a job, right? I better get to work. I better fix that leak. I better, that, it grows you up. Marriage makes a man out of you. So gentlemen, cut out the cheap sex. Man up. Get married and do what God has told you to do. And if you're not going to get married, the Bible says that is perfectly fine. It is not wrong But you also need to keep yourself from lust as well. Now, once married, number four, men are to remain faithful to their one female wife forever. I have to give all these qualifiers now because of the days in which we live. Faithfulness. Who's our example for how a husband is to treat his wife? It's Jesus Christ. And he's the one who said over and over again, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Christians stay married. We've got to stop questioning this one. Christians stay married. Mormons do better at this than we do, to our great shame. Malachi chapter 2, 14 through 16 says, The Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did God not make them, meaning husband and wife, make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord. Interesting that the opposite of love is divorce in this passage. The Lord says he covers his garment with violence. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. We know that there is a spiritual dimension to the marriage relationship. The Lord says there is a portion of the spirit in your union. There's something supernatural that happens when a man and woman come together as husband and wife. 
which is why we say it, our wedding ceremonies, what God has brought together, let not man put asunder. Don't break it. Of course, the world drops marriages at the slightest provocation now. The average marriage will end in seven years or less. And in fact, if you, I got to remember this stat because we use it for premarital sometimes. If you are married for one year, you double your chances of staying married to the end of your life. If you're then married for five years, you double it again. If you're married for seven, you double it again. And if you make it past seven, it's almost certain that you're going to be married for the rest of your life. Those early years matter. Right? And that's, this is why they, that phrase that we talk about, the seven-year itch, is a, is a real thing. Because when you get to that point, it's like you've, you've kind of, you know everything there is to know about each other at this point. Right? You've explored one another. You, you maybe have had children. You've got a life. And all of that, that early use the Disney term, Twitter patient, remember that from Bambi? That's all gone. And so you start missing it. And that's when you have to really start working on it. Statistics bear that out. But people will break their families apart because of money, because of a simple inability to get along. Grown people who just can't get along, like what we learned in kindergarten. And I'm not minimizing the fact that there are some horrific situations, but we're not talking about the exception today. We're talking about the rule, all right? Or people that break apart because of sex. It's, it's ridiculous to me. I can't remember where I first heard this, but they were talking about some person who had found out that he was, or found out, he had decided that he was gay and so he was going to leave his wife and family. And somebody said in that context, that sex is not that important. Right? It's just not. We made an idol out of our desires and our drives and our lusts. And so we break apart our marriages and our children. And the thing is, we keep doing this, even though we have realized abundantly so that it is it's disastrous. It wrecks children. It maybe wrecked you growing up. And we keep doing this and keep acting like it's not a big deal. Jesus had other ideas. Jesus said in Mark 10, 11, if you divorce for any reason other than sexual immorality, then you've committed adultery. Christian men are in it for the long haul or we don't get into it at all. My advice is don't even say the D word in your house. Even in teasing. Don't say, oh, I'm going to divorce you for that. Just don't. Just don't. And especially not when you're fighting. Well, maybe we should just get divorced. That is so manipulative, and you ought to be ashamed of yourself if you said that one. Men or women. Are you going to leave me for this? No. You're trying to get out of this uncomfortable situation by taking it to a place that neither one of you really ought to go. When you have to stay, once again, it grows you up. If you know we're not going anywhere, it's like, well, then we better fix this thing. If I don't have this escape hatch that I can just duck out whenever I feel like it's, it's getting too hard, we're going to fix it. Which is why whenever somebody comes to me and you're saying, I'm having trouble with my marriage, I'm having trouble with this, I just don't know what to do, maybe I should, I should leave, maybe I should go. I, I love to use the phrase that uh, is used in the New Testament. You have need of endurance. Keep going. The Lord knew about all this and he still gave us this commandment. We bear witness to each other's marriages and we also ought to support each other in those marriages. Don't ever advise somebody to get a divorce, Christian. All right? And I'm, I mean, again, are there wild exceptions where there's maybe rampant adultery and drug abuse and violence? Yeah, okay, yeah, but I'm not talking about that, am I? I'm talking about most, almost all cases. Don't advise somebody to get a divorce. I'm, I think I'm just going to leave her, man. I found this other woman. Your answer to that is, what is wrong with you, sir? Go back and stay true to your word. Many people would rather honor, honor a business contract than they would their marriage covenant. Shouldn't be true here. So moving along here past the relationship section, although it's still related, manhood consists, number five, 
of working to provide for your family, for your wife and your family. Work predated the fall of Adam, which means work is not a bad thing. So those of you who are allergic to work, I have no sympathy for you. Ecclesiastes 5.18 says one of the best things. So Ecclesiastes, which is kind of a bummer of a book, it's kind of like the book of Job, except if Job was like really eloquent in how he wrote down his, his complaints, right? He says, here's something I found that is good to enjoy your work and the fruits of your work with your family. Men build the house, women make it a home. It's the order that God gave us. And if you don't like that, there's actually a lot of places in Scripture where it says that the older women ought to teach the younger women to keep the home. Balancing that with Proverbs 31, woman who would go out and would work outside the home. There's two things to learn there. But we're talking about the gentleman today. So here's this, talking about work and provision. 1 Timothy 5, verse 8, Paul says, If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. <laughs> if you do not provide for your family, gentlemen, you are denying the faith and you are worse than an unbeliever. So there's no sluggards in God's church. There is a responsibility upon a man to provide for the woman that he has taken unto himself. But here's the, here's the problem. This is one of those, it's not as much an activist thing, it's just kind of a, a thing we slide into. Work is now viewed upon as being done for my sake. I'm not working for her or for them. I'm working for me so that I can get mine, so that I can climb the ladder, so that I can have status, so that I can be somebody. My goals, my ambitions, my status. All of those things can be baked in, but if that's your fundamental motivation, if that's the big rock that goes in the jar, have you ever seen that illustration before? It's going to shape everything. It's not right, because now you start to resent her and resent him and those, other, those children for taking you away from your work. You start to resent the fact that somebody else has more than you. You can't delight in what you have because you're not working for your family. You're working for other people to view you as something. This has even led to women defining themselves this way. That being in the home is somehow not okay. That it's somehow wrong. And that it's insufficient and that you're lazy. And that disheartens their husbands because now dad, who is more than willing to sacrifice for wife and kids, is now being told that that sacrifice is unneeded and unnecessary. And then he's out there and he goes, well, what am I doing this job for anyway? I'm only doing it because of you people. I'm doing it because I love you. And now I'm being told that it doesn't matter. Vain glory is never to motivate you as you work. Philippians 2 verse 3 says that. Do nothing from selfish ambition. The old word is vain glory. It's a good word, I think. We do not labor for things which perishes. If you realize that your job exists so that you can put a roof over your family's head, so you can put food on their table, so that your kids never have to wonder if they're going to get shoes to go to school tomorrow, that you can provide blessings. There, there are a few things more fun for me as a dad. Like we went to Disney World last year and watching my little kids just like their jaws hit the ground and their eyes bug out because that's Mickey Mouse right there. <laughs> Or we took uh, Jocelyn, we went up into Cinderella's castle and she was in her little costume and she sees actual Cinderella watch out. She's like, <laughs> she was losing her little mind, three years old. She doesn't know the difference, right? And you know what? That thing cost me a lot of money. <laughs> but you know what? It was totally worth it. 
I loved it. Why? Because I'm doing this for them. I get to see their faces light up. We get to be away and be together. And so going back to work, going back and waking up early in the morning, and as we said, eating the bread of anxious toil, it's worth it if you're doing it for them. If I'm doing it for me, I'm going to have those mornings where I've got to get up at five in the morning. I'm like, why am I doing this? You're doing it for me. It's like, well, all I want to do is go back to bed. So why am I doing this again? It allows you to stop obsessing. When you place self at the center of work, you threaten the family structure. So let's fix that. Why are we doing it? We're doing it for them. Sixth, related to the last thing we saw. Yeah, we're going to have time. Good. Related to the last thing is leadership. God has set up men as leaders in his economy. And gentlemen, you need to step up and lead. We need to step up and lead. And this is not politically correct. This isn't even politically correct among people who like being politically incorrect. God created men to be leaders. Well, why? Because 1 Timothy 2.13 says he made Adam first, and Adam was not deceived by the serpent. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 7 through 9, says that man is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. Man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. There is an order that the Bible holds up that applies to marriage, Ephesians 5, 33. Wives submit to your husbands, and husbands love your wives. It applies to the church, 1 Timothy 2, 12. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. There's honor that the Bible gives to men. There's something significant that Paul draws out the fact that God created Adam in his image and Adam was alone with God before Eve was there. Now, it was not good that Adam was alone, but Paul holds that up. This is how God has raised it up. But the world has just about had enough with male leadership. Have you noticed? It's like, we don't even care if she's a good woman. If she's a woman, she ought to be in charge. In your home, in your church, in your sphere of influence. It's enough men. Enough men in the home. There's activists now trying to infiltrate uh, the Southern Baptist Convention. And I say activists because it's female pastors. And then you look at where they went to school. And they went to like Columbia. And they majored in like women's studies and social activism. They didn't become a pastor because they love Jesus. Because they want to get into these denominations and break up the patriarchy. And then they show up at these conventions and they make a big scene and somebody reports on the news somewhere that, oh, it turns out that Baptists or Calvary Chapel or whoever doesn't want women. Why do they hate women? Because that's enough men. Rewrite, rewrite scripture, reinterpret scripture to be a more female-centered perspective. And here's the crazy thing. With all of that, you know, w- women standing up and trying to push men aside and then also other men who are very suspicious to me in, in the way they conduct themselves. We've got to get rid of men and enough, enough leadership there, enough dads, enough fathers, enough husbands leading. We need to have more of this. The men have just stepped aside. It's like that worked. People yelled at us that we were bad leaders and we need to let us lead and we let them. Maybe we were bad leaders. Because a true leader knows how to handle that kind of thing. This is God's creative order. We have let activists rewrite our world. People that don't just, they don't just say, we need to fix this thing. They hate the entire structure of the Bible. They hate the church. They don't believe in Jesus. They believe that Christianity is oppressive and has got to be broken. And then they want to show up and talk about women's issues and we listen to them? I don't think so. The Bible says that the spiritual things cannot be discerned by the carnal man. 
or the carnal woman. This is God's created order, and it is revealed will. And we don't sacrifice it for cultural applause. And by the way, gentlemen, in almost every case I have seen, your wife or the women in your life don't like it when you step back and make them step up. I heard a lot of female amens right there just now. Well, I don't want to be pushy. I don't want to be, I don't want to. No, be strong. Why do you think? Let me use a really basic example that we use in premarital all the time, Catelyn and me. Where do you want to go to dinner, babe? Oh, I don't care anywhere. No, really, I want you to tell me. I picked last time. I don't really, I want to know what you wanted to go. Why doesn't she ever just tell me what she wants? She wants you to pick, dummy. <laughs> she wants you to lead. She wants you to make the decision for her. Because she wants to know that you can make those decisions. She wants to know that if the chips are actually down and he really needs to step up and be the guy in the post-apocalypse that's going to fight off the wolves, that you can do it. It's really funny. Every time we do that in premarital, it's like they always look at each other like. It's like, oh, you've had this argument, right? Yeah. And we can usually like lay it out for them of how it went. Like, yeah, that's totally true. It's like, yeah, well, she's not one of the guys. Lead her. Be the leader in your home. Including, by the way, the discipline of your children, gentlemen. Well, I'm going to let her do that. No. Well, I'm not good at it. Get good. In the church. Don't let the women take the lead. You step up. And I say we do a great job of that in this church. I'm not rebuking you. In any sphere of influence, do what you need to do and don't be cowed by anyone. Bathsheba wrote to Solomon in Proverbs 31, do not give your strength to a woman, my son. She knew what was up. She said, you do what God has called you to do. You be king, you be leader, and don't let all these wives that you seem to be so fond of get in your way. We lead because God has said so, but I really truly believe that culture and also women here are desirous of that correction. Number seven, fatherhood. That's well, Father's Day, right? It is a glorious thing to be a father. We read that, right? Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of a man's youth, and blessed is the one who fills his quiver with them. That's a really poetic way of saying, blessed is he who has tons of kids. That's what the Bible says, Psalm 127. We just read it this morning. Now, I recognize that all, not all men are going to marry or father children. But again, we're talking about the rule, not the exceptions. This is the normal way of it. Let me read this again. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Now, today we're talking about moving past an adolescent view of manhood and moving towards an adult, grown-up view of manhood. There are a few things more wonderful that will push you to be a man and to grow up and to be an adult than having a little person in your life who calls you daddy. I have four kids now, and they're getting big, and I still love this, but when I come home, I have a little bowl where I drop my keys and it, you can hear it throughout the whole house. And it's like when you, if you ever have a cat, like you shake the food and they all come running or something like that. And you're like, clink, daddy! And they all come running. And I love that they come running. But now they're getting big and they like plow into me and knock me into the door. And then here comes Sammy like behind everybody else, toddling, trying to catch up. It's just, you see that? And you go, I got to stop goofing off, man. I don't have time for this. I don't, I don't have time to, to go out, maybe, as much as I used to. 
And we tease each other about this. And it's fine to rib each other and everything. Like, hey, man, you coming out? I was like, no, nah, I'm going to stay in tonight. Oh, you got to be home with the family. He's like, no, nah, I get to be home with the family. These are my favorite people. Parents are always made fun of by people that don't have children for talking about their kids all the time. It's like, yeah, well, you talk about the Mandalorian all the time. And nobody cares about that either. <laughs> These are my kids. This is my family. I love them. I'm going to talk about them. But fatherhood has been viciously attacked. When's the last time you saw a competent dad on television who was the hero and didn't have some secret dark side to him? If you've got a good dad on TV, just you wait. He's either going to die or we're going to find out that he's not so great after all. And he's got a lesson to learn from his 12-year-old daughter. There are ex exceptions to that. Finding Nemo is one of the best dad movies of all time. Dads are idiots. Dads are all abusive. Dads are unnecessary. I'll, I'll never forget this. I saw, I didn't pick up the magazine, okay? But I was in the grocery store and I saw a tabloid and on the front was some celebrity or, or other. And it said, it was her smiling real pretty. And it said, I don't need a man to be a mom. Like, That's true. I mean, it's kind of not true. <laughs> but the point I'm trying to make is, but you can never, ever be a father to that child, madam. And we have run the experiment on, let's see how it works with mom and no dad. It's not good. It's not working. We need dads. I just read all those stats to you. Now we have fewer dads than ever before. Do you know what the fatherless rate is in Alabama? The number, the percent of children who are born into a family with no dad? 48%. Half of every birth in the state of Alabama is to a home that does not have a father. Well, at least we're better than the rest of the country, right? California's 38%. New York is 38%. Washington is 31%. The worst is Mississippi at 55%. So much for Southern pride. Utah is the lowest at 19%. Mormons. God himself is our father, and he puts the drive to be a father in us. We need dads. We need dad to be venerated and lifted up and set up as an example. Men, don't be afraid of fatherhood. So many guys, well, I don't know what I'm going to do with kids. You'll figure it out. God has given you instincts. You know way more than you ever thought you did. And by the way, you, I guarantee you, if you've been online once, you've read more books about parenting than a lot of parents have. Childhood is so short, too. Can I say that? Dad, give your kids your attention while they're little. Because you're not going to be little for long. Well, I might not get ahead at work. There will be time for that. You're going to have little kids for a very short time. And then you're going to have decades of grown children. So don't, don't, don't sacrifice those special years. It's just not worth it. Do it like God does. Ephesians 6.4 says, Don't provoke your children to anger, but train them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Dad, lead your house spiritually and bring your son along with you. Teach him. Show him. Is there anything that will grow you up faster than fatherhood? <laughs> I don't think so. Makes a man out of you. People say things like, Oh, that whiskey makes a man out of you. That car makes, that woman makes a man out of you. No, it doesn't. It's being dad what makes a man out of you. When you're holding a little, little person that's yours 
and they expect you to take it home and keep it alive somehow. Like, I still play video games, man. Like, <laughs> this is a whole human I've got to take home. It grows you up. It grows you up. I'm going to say something a little, little funny, but also I think it's kind of sweet when I'm thinking about this. You know why dads tell terrible dad jokes? Because when the kids were one and two, they thought they were hilarious. And then they get a little older and we tell them, and oh, dad, that's not so funny. And then it's kind of funny to tease them about it. But there's a part of dad that's like, oh, you used to think this was so funny. It's not, I think this is hilarious, although we do think it's funny to watch our kids cringe at us, right? But it's like there, there's a memory involved in that. I remember the first time I told Micah, why did the chicken cross the road to get to the other side? He busted a gut laughing. He'd never heard that before. Now he doesn't care, right? Especially when he's 18, he's really not going to care. But take the time to love your kids and be a good dad. And the eighth thing, the last thing here before we go to communion. Saul goes back to being devoted to the Lord. Spirituality is our eighth virtue today. A real man is a man of God. The church ought not to be the domain only of women and children. It should not be a rite of passage for a young adult man to leave the church. God created us for himself. There was a time, short though it may be, but it's significant, where it was just God and Adam in the garden. Psalm 144, verses 1 and 2. David, who was a poet and a harp player and a songwriter, and who write things like, I flood my pillow with tears every night, but was also a warrior, was also a guerrilla fighter, was also a wilderness guy. He said, blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. He is my steadfast love and my fortress, my stronghold and my deliverer, my shield and he in whom I take refuge, who subdues people under me. The Hebrew man tied his masculinity to knowing God. God teaches my hands to make war and trains my fingers for battle. I am a masculine man because I know God. The Lord is not just a God of the feminine virtues. In fact, we usually misinterpret how God talks about things like love and kindness in a, in a feminized way so that men say, well, I don't want anything to do with that. I don't want to sit here and talk about my feelings all day long. That's not who I am. Is that what it means to be a Christian? God is a God of masculine virtue too. But today's man is disconnected from the life of God. He'll let his wife lead spiritually. He's a member of a church, but he, he goes you know, on holidays and things like that. I want my wife to take the kids though. It's important for them. My boss, my first boss, he was an Austrian man named Reinhard. He was a chef in the back of this and, uh, well, you know, although English was not his first language, he has certainly learned all the swear words real good. And uh, he found out I was a Christian. He goes, oh, yes, church is very important, very important. I said, where do you go to church? He goes, oh, I don't go to church. But then he talks about how he sends his daughter to Catholic school and makes sure they get out of bed. And he says, sometimes I have to shout at her to get out and go to church on Sunday. I'm like, but you don't go? Oh, no. But it's important for my kids to know. Dad, if you just, and I know you're here, so I'm preaching at you, I guess, right? But if you tell your kids, dad stays home from church, you guys go. Your son, when he starts to grow up and starts wondering what a man is and what a boy ought to be and what do I do? Well, dad never goes to church. I'm not going. 
Kind of like you see your dad watching football, so I'm going to start watching football. I see dad working in the yard, so I'm going to get out there and work in the yard. My dad doesn't go to church, so I'm not going. No time for the kind of zeal that David showed. David would worship and bow before the Lord before battle. And I'm like, well, prayer is just kind of a sissy thing. That was how my great-grandfather didn't want to get saved. He used to mock my granddad when he got saved for bringing all that sissy stuff into my house. I thought you were a man. I thought I raised you better than that. You're going to bring all this stuff into my house. That's unfortunate that that's the way it is. And some churches have done a very bad job of making church a place where men can feel comfortable. We try very hard and actively and intentionally to do that. Spirituality is a masculine pursuit. We need to do this. We got to take the same passion that you devote to sports or to politics. And by the way, those are both appropriate places for you to have zeal or passion. I'm not saying take it away. But you also, and more so, need to have that same energy directed towards the church. As an organization? No, as a mission. This is where your commander has commanded you to go out and do the work and to engage in the battle. We need to be loyal to the Lord and loyal to our churches. 1 Timothy 2 verse 8, Paul says, I desire first of all that men should pray. And that is not a general statement of like mankind. That's a gendered word, aner, men should pray. Paul sees the, the responsibility of prayer in the church primarily to fall to the men. Once again, we do a great job at that here. I'm not trying to get on you if, you, if you're doing well. How do, we, how do we do this? We've got to start by stopping, <laughs> stopping the mockery of manliness in the church. We've got to take it seriously. We've got to think about, like we do, and these are things that we do as a philosophy of ministry. Think about the songs that the church is going to sing. Right? And now, listen, there's, there's time for both. The Bible calls us the bride of Christ. Okay? So there's a place for songs like Ever Be, right? Whereas your love is devoted like a ring of solid gold. Or you're clothing me in white. It's a, it's a marriage, wedding metaphor. And the fellows might be like, oh, I don't know. It feels kind of awkward. All right. Well, listen, you are the bride of Christ, metaphorically. So sing about it. But also, it's like there's other stuff in there, too. Right? The Son of God goes forth to war, a kingly crown to gain. His blood-red banner streams afar, right? That's something that, okay, guys, like, all right, this one, this one is for me. I like that. Right? That, our, that our prayers and our preaching is not just solely catered to bring us to the point of tears. It's like, come on, fellas, it's, it's, let's, let's all cry together. Listen, is there a place for that? Yeah. But guys are never going to get there by somebody in skinny jeans coaxing them. <laughs> Ain't that the truth? So come on, just we got to be more available and more open. And I'll tell you, I'm not saying them, I'm saying me. I've been in some of those groups where you've got some guy that's like, he's trying to be religious and he's trying to be spiritual, but it all kind of ends up sounding like, like pop psychology and it's kind of very unmanly. I'm like, you're not getting a thing out of me, pal. I've got all kinds of problems I'd love God to fix, but I'm not about to tell you. That's not, is that right? No, it's not right. But there it is. And we in the church need to make sure that we work on that, that we honor manliness. We don't teach that true spiritual men are men that act just like women. So these eight things that we've gone through here, they're all of a piece. Each one of these feeds the other. And what I'm trying to do, I know this has been kind of wide-ranging, is we, we've got this way that we do manhood now. And some of it, again, is activism, and some of it is just laziness. 
and letting the flesh take control. Some of it's a fear to grow up. All of it is of a piece. You can't just say, we got to get rid of the activist part and, and replace it with something else. Well, what about the rest of this stuff? You can't just say, let's stop looking at ourselves as adolescents and still be feeding your flesh and all the rest of that. You've got to take apart the whole thing. You can't fix a fleshly, sinful system. It needs to be replaced with what God has said. The world needs men simply to be. Just to be men. To stop responding to the taunts and the shame. It's like, this is, this is toxic and this is not right. It's like, well, with all due respect, ma'am, I don't think you know what masculinity ought to be. You're a woman. You can recognize it, but you can't define it. Same thing for you gentlemen, with, your, with the ladies in your life. Right? That's, men can't teach young girls to be feminine. You can help them, you can tell them, but you need a woman in that life, don't you? It's the same thing for us. Stop waiting for permission to be who God made you to be. It's good to grow up. This is something we got to, we can just hammer this. If we pick at least this up, we got to stop raising Peter Pan, man. Like it's good to grow up. Stop talking to your teenagers like, oh, these are the best years of your life. Well, then why would they ever want to move on? No, the best years, you got, most of your life is still in front of you. Yeah, the likelihood that these are the best years of your life is infinitesimal. Don't you want to get married and have kids and have a, have a job? Oh, I don't know. I'm just kind of find myself. And it's like, what is that? What is that? Grow up. We've got to start doing that, modeling it. Those of you who are older in God's church, be okay with being an old man in God's church. Be okay. No, this Bible says that is a glorious thing. That is to be saluted and honored in the church. It says you should stand before the gray head, the law says. And when, they, when an old man enters the room, they were to stand up and honor that. But now we're so scared to death, it's like, let's hear what the, the 20-year-old has to say. Now, there's, there's plenty of space for that, right? Don't let someone despise your youth. But if all we're trying to do is hold on to youth, and that's the thing that we care about the most, no wonder our kids don't want to grow up. They say, I am now what you, Dad, keep trying to be. So why would I try to be more like you? Why would I go get a job? Why would I go and get married? Why would I take life more seriously? Because that's the stuff you complain about and hate so much. I'm going to stay in this stage as long as I can. We've got to stop that. And it starts by us honoring, venerating, and holding up adulthood in general and manhood specifically as a good thing the way the Lord does. We honor fathers in the church just as Christ honored his father, and of course we honor our Heavenly Father as well.